Hey, everybody from Latinas in Clinical Research. Thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, today, we are going to be interviewing Dr. Hazen. If you saw our last webinar, uh, you will know that she is amazing. She's an awesome PI. She does research. I'm a massive fan. Judy's a massive fan. Everybody loves her. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, I want her to give a little bit more insight for what she does. So, Dr. Hazen, do you mind giving us a little bit of background? So, I'm a gastroenterologist by trade. And I started doing clinical trials my first year of fellowship at University mm -hmm. of Florida. And essentially, um, I went the clinical, the clinical GI route and then um, was doing 90% GI and 10% research. And then little by little, 16 years ago, kind of went 90% research, 10% GI, and started doing a slew of clinical trials that I would never think I would I would ever do from ankle sprains to pulmonary to cardiac to cholesterol to GI. And then little by little, um, you know, I was known in the world of clinical trials as the, the C. diff doctor. And why? Because people would send me patients with Clostridium difficile. I would put them on a clinical trial, which was very tough to recruit those patients to begin with. And then uh, once, if the clinical trial didn't work, I would do fecal transplant on them. When fecal transplant started opening my eyes to a lot of other things being fixed from it, um, or at least improved, I should say, um, I started questioning, well, what am I doing? What's going on? And then I created a company called Progenobiome with the interest of understanding the microbiome because I felt that we were heading, and I think uh, you've heard me speak with Dan in the past. I said, 20 years ago, we were doing antibiotics for everything. Then we went to biologics for everything. And now we're in the fecal material business, right? And so if we're approaching the fecal material business, we better understand what we're doing and understand the microbiome. And so I set myself on a path, realistic or not realistic. I just jumped and decided to open a genetic sequencing lab to write the microbiome and disease encyclopedia, essentially. What microbes are responsible for what disease and what is the imbalance and what's going on there. And over the last two years and a half of doing this and seeing samples of Parkinson's, MS, Alzheimer's, autism, I discovered that there's a power to the microbiome and our microbiome is our immunity. And so when COVID hit, I put on my hat of clinical research and genetic sequencing and GI and realized probably COVID is in the gut because it sits on ACE2 receptors. And therefore, if it's in the gut, then, you know, it's a GI problem. And so I better start thinking of it that way and start putting on my hat of how to fabricate a drug or how to create a combination of drug, much like what we did with H. pylori, Dr. Barodi. I actually associated myself with Dr. Tom Barodi. And I said, Dr. Barodi, we got to fix COVID. And he said, we need a formulation and we need compounds together that we put together. And so, cause he was behind the treatment for H. pylori and he was the pioneer of fecal transplant. And so started writing the protocols, three protocols. We put them through the pipeline of the FDA. I have a portal with the FDA, uh, which, you know, having done research for so many years, you get to learn everything, right? And I think also, you know, reading these protocols and learning how to do these protocols, you learn how to become a sponsor eventually. And so that was my path. I discovered you know, how to do the protocols, how to uh, run the protocols, how to write the protocols, how to submit them through a portal, 
how to do all that. And then eventually he became, uh, you know, Topelia, which is housing the three clinical trials that we're doing. So that's it. And as a working mom, I know oh. Judy, Judy, Judy's <laughs> yeah. your newest fan. <laughs> and we're I'm so inspired. <laughs> we're all fans. We're all fans of Judy. <laughs> So I know Judy, Judy, you had some questions. Judy specifically yeah. said we need to interview Dr. Hazel. Yeah, like this is not my idea. This is like Judy. No, actually, idea. it's it's very fascinating your story because you don't yeah. you don't hear this a lot. Someone who no. goes to med school, clinical trials, then is a sponsor and running clinical trials. I mean, you do it all and you've learned yeah. all those aspects. So sure it's actually yeah, and then balancing family and everything. So I was actually yeah. really interested to know exactly how all that came about. What is, what is the juice. <laughs> How do you make it happen? How do you make it happen? You know, I think for me, so I always say you can only do two things well. Yeah. Uh, if you do a third thing, it shoots you off balance, right? So if I focus on clinical trials and my practice, that usually goes well, but then, you know, I'm neglecting my children. So then I have to kind of like balance. It's a balancing act, right? Constant balancing act. And I think all women, that are in the world. And I see your daughter in the back. I know. So, <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. I said, so I'm going to be on the call. <laughs> you're juggling, right? You're juggling the call and you have your kid in the back. And, you know, I remember when I started this craziness of, you know, wanting to be, a, I, I wanted to be a doctor and I wanted to understand life, right? So that was my first thing as a human being and as, you know, on the planet. You know, I got married, had kids, and, you know, I had to figure it out. I had to figure out early because I was a GI fellow and my husband was a cardiology fellow. So I had to juggle the calls. We were both on call one and four nights. And we, I had a baby, a brand new baby while I was the only fellow in GI on call. So I was like one on three oh call gosh. and he was one on four. And I had to juggle figuring out the babysitting situation. And I didn't have my parents next to me. I was in Florida, University of Florida. And, you know, I would say to my husband, why is cardiology so much more important than GI? GI is just as important. <laughs> and, you know, really should, why is it dumping on me to find a babysitter, you know? Hmm. And so I learned early how to juggle that. So I had to have a babysitter on call so that when I was on call with my husband, it wouldn't interfere with call and I would still see my job. So it was a juggling act. Um, I always remember in med school, one of my interviews in med school, a woman asked me, what happens if a patient is sick and your child is sick? And I felt that it was an unfair question because I said, why would you ask that for men? I mean, that's so unfair, unfair to ask that for women, right? Yeah. And that situation did happen multiple times, you know, where I have to juggle, but somehow you make it happen and you're handling both fine. As long as you only have both things fine, right? Yeah. But if you're handling, you know, I'll always remember I was dealing with, my daughter had a questionable appendicitis and I had um, a patient that was sick. So both were sick at the same time. And at the same time, somebody else called me and said, my kid has rectal bleed and I need you to see them. And I said, okay, wait, I can only <laughs> send it to another doctor. And I coordinated that, that patient. So when you learn how to juggle, all those things and you manage to to do multiple things and you learn how to run multiple wheels at the same time it's almost like an obsessive compulsive 
you know, disorder, but it's like ADHD. But Organized. having, <laughs> but it is ADHD, but you, <laughs> have, you, um, you learn to use the power of ADHD, right? So you learn how to find tricks to survive, right? If, I, if you put me on one thing alone and you say, Sabine, write this book, it'll never get written. But if you put me and you say, write this book, but then conduct clinical trials, run your house, run your kids, then it'll get done. <laughs> but if it's, it's crazy, but this is like my nature. Few people have that ability. Few people, I have to say. And I've met a couple people in my life. Dr. Barodi is one of those people. <laughs> that sounds kind of similar. <laughs> no, every time I think I have like 20 things on my plate, he's got 30. And you know, he's he's constantly running a busy practice and he's thinking of different products and he's working a cardiac product and a GI. And so you learn, you learn how to juggle all that and and you know to the best of your ability. Yeah. So yeah, you did write the book on it. Let's oh, talk about it. Yes. I need to read is the it. Book. Oh, sorry, Judy, you get kids in the room, but let's talk. That's okay. I got uh, the headphones. Okay, on. I got you. I got you. So, yeah, you did actually. You literally did do yes. it. That's but awesome. I, had help. I mean, it was like there were, there's three authors in there. Shelly, mm. who is my co author, actually really writes in the book. She helped me put my shit together. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, right. I, mean, like, I, did, I had written a book called Let's It's Just Gas. Uh, way back like 10 years ago and I never really got it out and then when the microbiome came on I, I changed my focus because I felt like a lot of people that are gassy need to learn about gas and what's causing gas right and so it was initially it's just gas and then when the microbiome and the clinical trials and everything I started doing took a different form that book became the book became a chapter, it, um, Gas Prices, in the Let's Talk SHIT book. And um, yeah, me and uh, Shelly and Dr. Barodi basically juggled all that and made it happen. That's awesome. Um, Honestly, it's like, that's amazing. I, um, I, I hope it helps a lot of people because, you know, a lot of times people are bloated, they're gassy. They don't necessarily want to go to a GI doctor and then you're told to do gastro a bunch of tests. You know, it's it's good to remove like the nutrition component that could be the problem or the simple things by just reading the book first and then, you know, going to see your GI to make sure it's not, you know, anything serious. So yeah. can you can you tell us some this is Latinos in clinical research. You work in a I don't, wouldn't say predominantly Hispanic community, but Ventura has a good amount of, of uh, Hispanics. What what have you noticed uh, as far as patients, like the differences amongst the patients? From let, let's compare oh, Caucasian with Hispanics. Yeah, so first of all, they're my favorite population, uh, and not because I'm on Latino channel, but because you know they're family oriented. They love. They have a passion in them. They love life, and they question things, uh, but they're also very respectful. Um, and they're not, they're very modest. And that's what I love about the population. So I, you know, I will treat farmers for like, you know, fruits and vegetables um, faster than I will treat a CEO of a company, for example, because it's just, they're, they're more family oriented, more compassionate, more, more, less, you know, entitled 
and that I like that about that that population. And also, you know, I'm I have like some Spanish blood in me, so of course. You've got Spanish family. blood. Let's make you uh, <laughs> Latino and research and back. <laughs> um, my family's from Seville, so I have some oh, Seville. Seville, so yes. Awesome. But my Spanish is not that great yet. So uh, that's me <laughs> too. My my mom's side actually has family from Seville. Most of my yeah. dad's side is from Mexico. Yeah. So the uh, Pinto was my mother's last name. Ah, okay. There's a street in Seville, Pinto. So that's why I kind of, you know, that's, you know, that's my, uh, that's my people. Those are my people <laughs> away. So, cool. and but also all my, co- all my coordinators are from Mexico and, and uh, one's from uh, Argentina. So, you know, it's a different, you know, we're all, I'm not American. I was, I'm a Canadian, but I was born in Morocco. So, and my family's from Spain, Germany, et cetera. So we're all, you know, we're all kids of the planet. I had a, I had a, uh, somebody called my office the other day, my, uh, my house and, and did one of those questionnaires saying, are you um, Democrat or Republican? I'm like, neither. <laughs> are you conservative or liberal? Neither. Are, what's your race? Plan- child of the planet. What's your, uh, you know, they just were trying to, to categorize me into a box. Yeah. Can just, you, I don't like being categorized in a box. Can you romance us a bit like you did when my wife and I came over and you give us that story of we all come from the dirt or something? You said it like you were very eloquent in the way you said Four it. Elements. Oh, we come from the dirt, from earth. <laughs> so microbes, microbes, you are born from microbes that you inherit from your mother, right? So when you carry your child, and you deliver that child, that child gets a portion of your microbes, right? Of the microbes of the mom, right? And then those microbes through life get older and then the imbalance gets created and then the, the overgrowth of the bad stuff, we'll say, starts going up and that's the process of aging, right? You start from good stuff to the bad stuff. And then eventually the process of dying is really the body, the bacteria in our gut, and in our body, start decomposing the body into the earth. So if you think about it, we came from a mother and then that bacteria goes back to the earth, but the bacteria is still alive. It still goes on. So it goes into the planet, it goes into the fruits, the vegetables, the roots, the trees. So it's a beautiful process to, to think of it that way, that we're, you know, whatever is we're just a reservoir for all these microbes. The microbes are leading us right now. COVID is leading us, right? So you have to kind of think of it that way. If that's not motivation, Republican, Democrat, doesn't yeah. matter. You're <laughs> bacteria, and that's it. You're just bacteria. The sooner we think that way, the sooner we'll have peace in this planet. I'm sold. I'm sold. I'm bacteria. And and speaking on that, what recommendations can you give us? Because now I feel like I have to go change all my eating habits or reevaluate everything that I'm doing. (laughs) Read the book because I don't know if I'm doing it right. (laughs) If you're healthy and your bowels are fine, you're doing it right, do not change your diet. The mistake people make is they hear somewhere, oh, you need to eat more of this, you need to eat more of that. But guess what? We have different dietary requirements, right? You were born from a mom, I take it it was born in Mexico. 
Okay, so your diet is the Mexican food. The you know you're comfortable with that food. That's your comfort food, right? Once you change your diet and you start eating sushi, Japanese food, mac and cheese, you know, which is not really Mexican food, that's when you start getting problems. And inevitably, as a GI doctor for 25 years, you know, patients would come to me and say, you know, I changed my diet and then all of a sudden I'm bloated. Well, why did you do that? Why did you listen to that person? Or my favorite is people will take probiotics, right? Nothing's wrong with them and they're taking probiotics, but probiotics are bacteria. Why are you taking probiotics if your gut is fine? You have to trust your gut. If your gut is healthy and you don't have any gas, you don't have any diarrhea, you don't have any constipation, no blood in the stools, nothing, you're fine, you're eating fine, you have an appetite, leave things alone. If, however, something is, you're feeling bloated, gassy, then there's something off, your gut tells you. You know, even in autistic children, when you listen to the story, the parents will tell you there's always some GI problem there, but they can't articulate it. Mm -hmm. So GI symptoms is really, you know, we have to be more in tune with the GI problems. And when you ask people with Crohn's disease, for example, what happened? Why did you get Crohn's? And then you take the history and they'll tell you, well, you know, I was, it started when I was in Holland and I ate blood sausages, right? Mm -hmm. And then they tell you, they changed their diet for a bit and it started the cascade of microbes that could have potentially caused Crohn's disease. We don't know, but that's what we're thinking. So, so I think uh, if, if you're fine, leave it alone. So real quick, what it, so getting back to keeping your diet as is, so long as you're healthy, but what if your diet is a dozen chili dogs today? eating 10 chili dogs a day you probably want to cut that down <laughs> you have high cholesterol you're probably overweight so and all this but i will tell you there are some people like my daughter for example will eat mac and cheese nachos french fries from mcdonald's i mean i cannot change the diet no matter what i do right but the kid's healthy, right? So I'm not going to change anything and get into a fight with her if she's healthy. She never gets a cold, nothing, right? So you see these people that are like eating that junk diet and they're fine, right? But if that junk diet is causing you problems, it's causing you diabetes, high cholesterol, etc., then probably you want to change. But, you know, if, uh, you know, I see 80-year-old women who eat junk food and who've eaten junk food their whole lives and they don't have cholesterol, they don't have heart disease. So there's something in those people that are that is sustaining them. I'm not gonna change anything because their cholesterol is fine, their blood pressure is fine, even though to my standards and to the standards of the diet of today, this is this is too much. But think about it, the pyramid of food you know, that remember when it was like four to five servings of bread, servings of bread, that's too much. We just figured that out, that that was too much, right? So we're constantly figuring out what is the perfect diet. And I think we need to figure out the perfect diet for the individual. And that's, that's my suggestion. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> you know what I mean by juggling? Judy. Yes, I know. <laughs> 
So one time I go on a call, she wants to ask me all these questions. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. We all have that. So this is actually like good applications for Progenobiome, right? Because you're studying a lot of this stuff. I mean, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. Hello from those in the future. Maybe we got out. Okay. Maybe not. Who knows? <laughs> but you're also studying like what's the diet's effect on the microbiome and you're doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's amazing how many studies you actually have that you yourself are the sponsor for how do you do this how do you how are you able to do all this i met your team um you know it's like a handful of core people but it's still like a lot for just a handful okay so i'm going to tell you something that's probably going to shock you but i haven't made a salary (laughs) in like two years everything that i put from my research from the research that i do for pharmaceutical companies i dump into my personal research Mm. so all the profit that i make I put it into my own personal research. So this is what, you know, this is my legacy in a way. This is my giving back. Um, you know, this is my passion. So, you know, why not? So is the awesome. private, is the industry sponsored trials basically funding basically your- well, A lot of different trial. things. A lot of different things sponsored. So we get, we get, so we created a nonprofit microbiome research foundation. So we get a lot of funding from that. Um, you know, I have, a, I have a, a private practice in Malibu of people that, you know, see my vision and that have sponsored and have put in money into the microbiome. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know you have a private practice in Malibu. I want to go to that one. That one sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because at the beginning when I started 16 years ago, so it was Malibu Specialty Center. And when I started 16 years ago, um, I was thinking of doing Malibu clinical trials. But then I realized, no, nobody's going to drive to Malibu to do that. <laughs> it's such a pain to get there. The monitors wanted to come, and I was uh, very and and they always thought that they were coming to Malibu <laughs> to do clinical trials and monitoring. And I would say, no, I'm in Ventura. What a letdown! We got to go to Ventura. <laughs> oh, yeah. no, Malibu, there's not that many. You know, Malibu is kind of vacant in a way. I mean, there's a lot of people that have second homes and third homes. You know, the locals, especially after the fires, a lot of the locals, you know, had to relocate because they lost mm-hmm. their homes. So it's not, uh, it's not conducive for clinical <laughs> Well, I think and, it's a, oh, sorry. No, um, so I was going to actually ask, so you're doing all this research and you're trying to answer these questions. Well, what are you hoping is the outcome or what do you think is going to be the outcome? Or what do you see based on what you've done so far? So what, that's a very good question. So I typically jump in to solve a, uh, a problem. Uh, for COVID, I jumped in to solve the COVID mystery. How do we fix this? Also to give myself confidence that I was right, um, that this is a treatment that I would do that's safe, um, that I would treat others with. So I think that's the first thing why I do research, to convince myself that this is the right thing to do, right? And that's why I do pharmaceutical trials too, to convince myself that the trial is actually a good thing for patients, right? Because I don't wanna be the person that gives a drug and then the patient dies from the drug because I didn't know what happened during the trials. So that's the first thing. The second thing is you do, you realize that when you get into the research and you start doing your own vision, your own innovation, you're stepping outside of the line that everybody else is following, right? So everybody follows this treatment line. And then you step away and you're like, you know what? Let me find my own treatment. 
while still holding the hand of the FDA and the regulatory boards to make sure that I'm doing something legit and not crazy, right? So that's why we do research. So while you do the research, you discover things, right? So I discovered properties of hydroxychloroquine, for example, testing it, trying it, that I didn't realize were properties that could be used for other things. I discovered properties of ivermectin that also didn't realize how the mechanism of action was working, right? So much for, especially in the terms of viruses, because we always knew ivermectin was for parasitic. We didn't really know that it had a capability of being an antiviral. So you discover things as you go into this path and then that directs the path, right? So the first person that discovered antibiotics, right? Directed everybody to start doing antibiotics. The first person that did um, biologics, monoclonal antibodies directed everybody else, right? We're in the microbiome space. The microbiome space was figured out by GI doctors that were doing fecal transplants, right? So when you achieve a result or a cure for Crohn's disease and you know what's changed with Crohn's disease, then all of a sudden you start going in that direction, you attain cures or improvement, and then you, the pharmaceutical companies follow, right? Or you pay attention to autistic children, pharmaceutical companies follow. So you do something to start a chain reaction for others to follow, to move the train, right? And so that's how I look at my life. I look at my life as I'm driving this fast speed train and people come on board, people leave, people come, people leave, people come, but it's still going fast to understand the microbiome and disease. In the midst of it, some people discover certain things and they take on, some people discover other things and take on another branch. And that's how you kind of like keep moving forward, but yet bring on people that you plant a seed and then they take off on their own way with their own research. And that's what I like to be. I like to be that driver of the train that has a vision and that hopefully brings on people to see my vision and start looking and then taking off. And, and we've done that. I mean, we've done that with autism. We have the first fecal transplant uh, protocol for autism. And it's great because it's brought in a bunch of doctors that are now interested in looking at autism. Um, the first case that I did fecal transplant with Alzheimer's, I noticed that when I did fecal transplant, I improved the patient's memory. And he could see, he could remember his daughter's birthday. So of course that brought on Dr. Jordan to work with me, Dr. K from uh, San Francisco to work with me and say, wait a minute, how did you do that? And can we explore looking at that, you know? And then Dr. Sasha from UCLA with anxiety, you know, we started looking. So people come on board and they, they figure out their way to develop things, but it starts with an ignition, right? It starts with that train starting, right? Because, and I don't have all the answers, but I'm a good, I'm a good driver. Well, I, actually my kids will say I'm a bad driver, but I'm a driver. And if you drive the train the right way and you don't, you don't focus on the negative and what people say or do or whatever, and you just continue focusing on what you're doing, you will get answers. And so far we've gotten some amazing answers that got a following and that developed the biome squad with all these doctors that do fecal transplant, you know, they, they joined because they saw I was doing something different. Right. And that's what doctors want. Right. They, 
they want to see some innovations because otherwise it's boring to just keep giving the same drugs over. And listen, ultimately we have not reached many cures in medicine. Wouldn't it be nice to reach cures? Hepatitis C we cured with Arvoni. Wouldn't it be nice if the future was more cures, more healing, you know, less mental health, less diseases, less chronic problems. That would be so much better. Yeah. And can you tell, you know, can you talk more about the fecal transplant? What exactly is that? Yeah, like who, that what, kind, what kind of patient would get it? The Does, book. The, the book. book. I need to get the book. <laughs> I, I've okay. always felt like. The movement of feces from a healthy donor <laughs> into another to restore the balance of bacteria in the recipient's gut. I've only read one page of this book so far, I but I'm totally going to read that. it. I'm going to read it, Dr. Hazen. <laughs> I always felt like anyway, the so neuro... The, the, so what we've discovered from fecal transplant is if you take healthy stools, let's say you have a disease. Well, right now it's approved for C. diff. Let's say you have C. diff, okay? And clinical trials didn't work and there's no medication in the pharmacy that works. You would come to me for fecal transplant. And I would probably take your daughter as the donor and make sure that her stools is perfect and I would transplant it into your colon and it would fix your seed. And it's the success rate is 92 to 99% success. So the risk, the risk is, uh, you know, that the person accidentally uses or maybe unknowingly uses uh, uh, fecal matter that's not healthy, right? Is that the main, Correct. the major risk? So that's risk? why you have, a, so there's actually a whole um, lab sheet of blood work we do for testing uh, for fecal transplant. So it's pretty intense. It's not something that, oh, well, let's just take your daughter's stools and make sure, you know, that and give it to her. You actually have to do a whole bunch of blood work and stool studies and everything. And the FDA has required three more stool studies. And now with COVID, we got to make sure that COVID is not in their stools. So they require us to test the patient for COVID. Mm -hmm. So you know, with this stuff and with CRISPR, I'm sure you're familiar with CRISPR. <laughs> yes, I mean, yeah. yes. you know, are we entering like a new decade of hopefully innovation in this industry? Because these are things like two things you haven't really heard about gene therapy yeah. and microbiome uh, <laughs> the last decade. So what do you we're, like? Are you optimistic? Entering, I, I'm hoping we're entering a world of precision medicine. I'm hoping we're entering a world where we want to attain cures rather than just palliate. I'm hoping we're entering a world of using the technology, but using it wisely to achieve those cures and not using it to create chaos and destroy, et cetera. So, you know, with every new technology, there's always, you know, the good, and then there's people use it for something else. So, you know, yes, we can use that for, improving lives but that same technology can can create you know chaos i mean we've seen with you know laboratories that are playing with bats you know should we be playing with bats you know i mean we wouldn't be in this problem right now if somebody if there was i think the same way that we have ICHUCP guidelines there should be laboratory guidelines worldwide that monitor and look at the ethics of doing and, and oversight a little bit more of doing laboratory experiments like that because 
The problem is if it did come from the lab in Wuhan, for example, the virus, um, you know, and someone played with changing or playing with viruses, it can be dangerous and it can be deadly. So I hope we're not going into that path of, um, I hope that the studies and the research is done ethically and that somebody's looking carefully. Because with the new technology, that could be destruction of you. The yeah. same way you can improve humanity, you can also destroy humanity. And so that's why our job is so important in the clinical trial world. It's not only to do these studies for pharmaceutical companies, but make sure that there's safety above and beyond. If a drug is causing a side effect or a problem, the patient needs to know about that. And that's why our job, that's why I stay in the trenches, even though I'm a sponsor now, you know, I stay in the trenches of doing clinical research because somebody needs to be vigilant about these studies. And I hope, you know, you guys are, you know, vigilant. And I know you guys, I know Dan <laughs> is, but it's so important. You, Judy, you've got to take a field trip with me and Chris next time to Ventura. Yes, uh, definitely. Let me know. <laughs> um, and I, and I, what, what, what phases of clinical trials do you, you run? Is it like anywhere from phase one all the way to, to phase oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. I think it's awesome. We've done some animal studies as well. So, yeah. I bet you didn't know that, Dan. Uh, I did not. But I was going to ask one more question because I know, unless you guys want to keep going. So, and you can say yourself and these three authors, Barodi, Ellsworth, who's like the leaders right now, like five people or companies, you can say progenobiome, uh, in the microbiome space right now, like in your opinion? Uh, okay, so in the microbiome space right now, there's three companies in the development of microbiome products. Like what you think's promising, I'm asking selfishly as an investor, you know, publicly traded <laughs> or not, just, I, I just wanna know. Give my opinion, I wouldn't even give my opinion. So, okay, so I'm gonna zip it there. All right, all right, so basically <laughs> you three, you know, I don't believe in, I, I don't do anything to do with the stock market. I've never bought a stock. All right, that's the wrong way to go about it. Who, who's, <laughs> who's, who's innovative in the space? You can say yourself. It's okay. That's it. I'm okay. leading the path. It's a I hear revolution. Respect, respect. <laughs> you wrote the book on it. I wrote the book. I think I wrote the book to say, you know, leading the path. We're leading like it, it the right way. We're not going to lead it with selling you a bunch of BS. We're going to lead it with telling you right. the way it is. And that's why I'm doing it with the FDA. That's why I'm doing it with regulatory boards because I'm not going to come out and say, this probiotic cures this disease. Right. I'm not, unless I have real data that is published, seen by the peer review process. And once they say all my, you know, before I published this, by the way, I sent it to 15 of my colleagues that are like academic doctors in GI. And I said, what do you think? And they all said, wow, this is pretty good. Put it out. There were very few corrections. Like I think a couple, not much. So that was my peer review process. And then when I saw that, um, I said, okay, I guess if my colleagues think that it's good, then it's good, that's it. But that's what the peer review process is called, right? That you call your friends and you say, hey, I discovered this, what do you think? And then they tell you, either you're crazy or no, don't put it out. Or they'll criticize. I mean, there's, 
medicine is rough, especially in research. You come out with an idea and you present it to your peers and they will tell you straight up, there's no, there's, they'll say it's anecdotal, forget it. The, don't, there's no data, do this, do that. And then you have to reinvent the, the experiment in a way to show them and convince them that the data is real. So it's tough. <laughs> well, that's not easy. I, it's honestly super inspiring. Seriously, it's just um, I think that that's awesome. Not just that you're doing everything, but you're you said you're leading the way. But I've always thought that like in the neuroscience sector as well as the gut, because it's you know gut brain relationship. I always I've always felt that those two are going to be the lead of just in general, like for the future. And even now, obviously, right, but most definitely for the future. And so it's pretty awesome to we've gotten the opportunity to speak to you. And hopefully one of these days when I go visit everybody in Cali, because I'm the only person in Texas, um, you know, maybe we could go see you as well. That would be awesome to meet absolutely, you in person. Absolutely. We'll take I a field trip. Yeah. Yeah. Bring them on. Everybody. Or all of y'all come to Texas. I don't know. I, I think Texas is probably a little better now. Who knows? <laughs> uh, I, think pharma, I think pharma trained me. I mean, won't you, don't you think, Dan, I think working in the pharmaceutical clinical trials probably helped me to get to this level, right? Yeah. I was going to say, I don't think it's possible for you to do progenobiome without your yeah. years, like decade in clinical research and in, in industry sponsored research because you knew, like you learned. Uh, the process. And I think a lot of doctors who are scientifically inclined and not entrepreneurially inclined, try to skip that. And they find that it's a lot harder than they thought. So you you actually know what you're doing, you approach it from a pragmatic standpoint where, hey, I've been a private practice, now I'm doing industry sponsored trials, now I could do my own trials. Why not? But what people don't see is the decades it took, you didn't just decide last year to do this. No, I tell you, it takes a lot of training. And it takes being involved, like really, because I think a lot of PIs don't get involved in clinical trials. They just take these studies, they sign the document, they don't overlook. You know, I surprisingly, and I tell this to pharmaceutical companies, you know, I take on the study, but I actually read the protocol. And while you read the protocol- You read the but, protocol? What a concept. <laughs> I know, what a concept. <laughs> I read the protocol and it taught me how to write a protocol, right? Because when you read the protocol, you learn how to write. Ah, so that's the lesson there. You got to have an internal driving force uh, in order to get through the nitty gritty. Because who likes reading protocols? That's not theirs. Well, especially let's say I do an Alzheimer's study, right? So I had done an Alzheimer's study. So I know what the inclusion exclusion were to look for in Alzheimer's. I knew what questionnaires to use in my protocol and what the endpoints should be. So I think all that is the training you get when you do clinical trials. And that's why the importance of not just sticking to your research uh, for, to your specialty as a PI, but also branching out because when you branch out and you do clinical trials on ankle sprains or asthma or COPD, you learn, you learn about those diseases. I did a flu study um, I did a couple of flu studies. Um, did I do it with you? One of, one of them was a Korean study. No, I didn't. No. So I did a Korean study, which was, um, you know, for an antiviral years ago. And I had the protocol and it, it was easier for me to write a protocol knowing what I had read before. So. There you go. The multiple levels of physician and, on, and opportunities in clinical research. 
uh they're just endless i mean yeah i think you're you're um a great example of the potential that that physicians can have if they get curious about clinical research so thanks for coming on any other questions we're all like your fans now after you appeared on our webinar everybody's fan but honestly i'm a fan of everyone on here ashley judy chris monica um but yeah thank you for coming on my pleasure pleasure. thank you so much this is awesome you know what i do have one question so how would uh sites like mine if they're interested in working on a study that you have going on how do we get um in contact with you or do you have somewhere you call me you tell dan to connect with me and then we'll put you on do you take do you yeah you take internships like part-time yeah absolutely yeah we hooked her up with the three Sierra academy interns carlos said they're actually were helpful yes awesome do you take like contract work on the side i mean (laughs) i'm i'm still working (laughs) full-time i mean this would be awesome um i actually like the the ability to teach interns and to train people and to show them then uh you know it's helpful for both you learn and I learn and and you help me so it's perfect but uh, Dan the future also is by the way not only microbiome but figuring out all the the properties our bodies have to heal ourselves right exosomes with your dad yeah well no not my dad that's Dr. Hoffman but yeah my dad's like his his friend yeah my dad's psychiatry he's really he sent you some articles he's like nerds out on this stuff he actually bought your book without knowing that I knew you and then later he's like oh yeah that's the same Dr. Hazen well we're going to be doing an anxiety study with the microbiome oh wow and that's awesome yeah Okay. So, so what the, the trick with this, with the microbiome is that you start analyzing samples and you categorize them. So in other words, some people are carnivores, some people are vegetarian. So we have all that information. So we can look at, you know, um, carnivores. We could look at vegetarian. As we accumulate samples, let's say we're looking at patients with Parkinson's, but then at the same time, the Parkinson patient is also a carnivore or on probiotics. So we get to analyze, look at all these samples we've done and we stratify them. And that's the beauty of it is it's not like I'm doing research on carnivores versus vegetarian. I'm looking at my people that I've tested and then I'm zoning, zooming in on what's different about them or probiotics X versus probiotics B. So that's important. Well, I'm pretty sure you do the anxiety one. That's going to probably get so much headline, especially we nowadays. We have a lot of patients. We've seen some things, so we'll see. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Well, this thank really you. Great. We all caught the Hazen bug. Now, yes, now we're we like super fans. Uh, and hopefully everybody watching connects with Dr. Hazen, Latinos in clinical research. Are you going to have a webinar soon? By any chance? Webinar. Webinar. Well, like, uh, like uh, Dr. Oh, by Hazen. Uh, yes. Yeah, so tomorrow, uh, Saturday. Register to www.malibuspecialty, no, Malibu, Malibu microbiome meeting meeting.com. And yes. you put the code MMM21 and that'll get you a free ticket. Register. Wow. Free ticket for the Latinos in clinical research audience and the clinical control guru. I'll put this on both channels and we're going to get a, yeah. like a lot of people in there. Yes. Um, I'll put the links Register underneath. Because it, it's a great meeting. You'll hear about fecal transplant on Parkinson's, fecal transplant on chronic UTI, 
Um, what is fecal transplant, the risk, the benefits, the microbiome, COVID-19 in the stools, autism, fecal transplant and autism, great, great meeting. So, and you get to ask questions to the leaders and the people that do this kind of stuff. Awesome. We'll do it. And Judy, Judy's got a future PI right there in her Ooh. lap. So <laughs> let's see how this so works cute. out, guys. Malibu microbiome Chris, anything else? Anything else you guys have to say as we uh, uh, end this? No, it was great. Thank you, Dr. Hazen. Thank yeah, you guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you everyone for watching, listening, and we'll catch you all later. Bye bye.